Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. I want to talk about ideas because uh, I find that beginning writers worry a lot about ideas. Even non-beginning writers uh, sometimes are concerned about ideas. There's a superstition a lot of writers have they shouldn't tell people their ideas, uh, either because they think somebody's going to steal their idea, um, which I think is not worth worrying about, uh, or because uh, you know if your idea is good enough in a nutshell, somebody will pay you to turn that idea into something. Uh, and if they do try to steal it, frankly, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, you can't copyright an idea, therefore it can't be stolen from you. Like from a legal point of view, your idea cannot be stolen because ideas can't be copywritten. Ideas don't have value. Uh, you know, only the expression, the fixed form of the idea can be copywritten. It's automatically copywritten in, you know, countries that observe copyright. So you don't need to worry about doing something fancy to you know secure your copyright. It just exists once you put the thing into fixed form. But at the same time, um, your idea doesn't have a fixed form until you you know, put it in one. So your idea can be taken by somebody else, and you shouldn't worry about that. If your idea is good, uh, people will look to you to express it. They'll assume that you can best express it. Now you can't necessarily do that. That's the assumption that people make. So if they really think your ideas are good, they will pay you to put them in a fixed form. Um, but more pointedly beyond that, um, somebody can't stealing your idea doesn't matter to you because your fixed form is your thing that you control and can sell. So even if somebody does take your precise idea and does their own version of it, the version will be so different from what you would have done with that same idea. Um, and what you both are selling is your fixed form, you know, your style, your approach, your particular way of handling that idea is the thing that is you know, unique to you, or at least you know, potentially unique to you at least, uh, that, that could be unique to you, that could be stylistically uh, differentiating you from other people. So your ability to turn that idea into a thing, a th you know, an actually expressed art object, is you know one the valuable thing about it? Uh, the idea itself does not really have any value, uh, and so for this reason, one you shouldn't worry about people stealing your ideas. But two, you can steal ideas. You know, you can you know open up Hamlet. You can write you know your own version of Hamlet. You can hide that it's Hamlet, you know, and make the Lion King, or you can acknowledge that it's Hamlet and make you know to be or not to be by Ryan North, uh, both you know based on Hamlet, very different, uh, very you know unique uh, stylistic expressions. But let's just get past whether or not you should worry about stealing your ideas. I don't think you should. Uh, there's a lot of reasons you shouldn't, but. That is a concern that people have, and part of the concern is the idea that ideas are rare. Um, you know, at the at the fundamental level uh, of that anxiety that somebody will steal your idea is the, your idea that ideas are rare. Um, writers often ask, you know, where do you get your ideas? Like that's become a cliche, uh, a question writers hate to answer, and everyone hates it so much for this reason. Non-beginning writers, uh, you know, writers who have some you know length of time where they've been doing this work. 
they know that getting ideas is the easiest part of writing. Uh, Neil Gaiman has a great quote. I forget where he says it, but uh, his quote is that a creative person more or less, I forget the exact quote, but you know, his point is more or less that a creative person is simply a person who notices that they've had ideas. He points out that people have great ideas all the time, but they don't notice that they've had great ideas. Uh, and Gaiman points out that the difference between a writer and just your average you know, Joe is like your average person will come up with a really cool idea, just like in passing as a joke, or they'll just say something, be like, oh, you know, it'd be funny. Uh, a rap song that... Um, where like they're telling the, the rappers telling you know somebody what they're gonna do to them sexually, um, but they're just ex- describing an extreme clinical detail. You know they're like actually like just you know so and then I'm going to do this. You know I take this particular organ and insert this other organ. Like the rapper is just detailing really explicit, spe- explicit, specific sexual, non-sexual, scientific detail, the sexual act that they're going to perform on this other person that they're singing to. So somebody will just say that, and they get like this weird idea like that, and they go, oh, that'd be funny, and they'll like joke about that with their friends. And they'll move on with life. Uh, and Gaiman points out like the artist is the person who has something wrong with them, <laughs> where they'll fixate and obsess about trying to make that thing a reality. Um, so th- everybody has ideas, People have great ideas all the time, they, uh, you know, but only like the writer, only the artist, only certain individuals will actually fixate on particular ideas and try to actually do something with them. Um, so if you do that enough times, if you actually you know write enough, uh, you what you'll realize at a certain point is that getting the idea is not the hard thing. It's the easiest thing to do is getting an idea. You have too many ideas. Uh, you know, people who non-beginning writers they fixate on ideas because it seems like the first thing you need to have. It seems like a thing that they're not already doing. What you learn as you go on uh, and develop as a writer is not that. Um, you just kind of learn how to watch yourself, to see where your ideas are. Uh, you learn how to kind of grab the idea and notice that you're having an idea. Um, if you write regularly, you're not going to have. The problem of having to find ideas you're gonna have the problem of having too many ideas when you have too many ideas you have a very different problem uh, it may seem like a luxurious problem but it is a problem a serious problem because you have to decide a few things so number one you have to decide uh, by the way i'm going to put the uh, show notes for this episode which is an you know, article on this topic of having too many ideas they'll be up uh, on my website at jonathanball.com 27 so again, it's jonathanwalt.com slash 27. You can read about having too many ideas, some of the challenges that that uh, faces or ma- makes you face, and some of the things to consider when you're trying to figure out which of these ideas should I marry? Which ideas should I commit to and you know extend um, into a life? Uh, so that's what we're going to discuss here. And that's, you know, again, what you can find uh, in the show notes on jonathanwalt.com slash 27. Having too many ideas. So here are the problems that you have to figure out uh, when you have too many ideas. You know, once you're in the habit of doing some writing for a while, you've got a lot of ideas now. Uh, whether you like it or not, you're going to have a bunch of ideas. So you're going to have to decide which ideas you should pursue. Number one, which ideas should you pursue? The reality is you're not going to have time to write all the stuff you want to write. You need to realize that all your ideas, even all your great ideas, are never going to materialize you won't even have time to do all your great ideas never mind all the good ideas that you have this is a hard 
concept for beginning writers with few ideas to wrap their heads around. Um, but after you start writing with some regularity, like ideas aren't the issue, time is the issue. You know, there's not enough time in the world to realize all your good ideas. So you really have to make hard choices about this. Uh, you have to accept that you will let good ideas die. You know, the darker side of that previous point is that you have to decide which ideas you will never pursue. You know, in addition to selecting the ideas you will pursue, you have to select the ideas you will not pursue. And sometimes they're very good ideas. You have to become comfortable with letting not just most of your ideas die, but even most of your excellent ideas. You know, you just can't do all the great, amazing ideas that you have. Uh, and you need to figure out what you're going to do. You have to commit to a project. You know, the temptation when you have a lot of ideas in front of you is to work on a lot of things uh, at once. Uh, you know, the temptation is to work on one thing until it begins to get tiring or difficult and then shift gears and work on a different project. Uh, now you can do that. I know some people who you know do very well doing that, but they have a lot of time. <laughs> you know, they're full-time artists who are dedicating themselves, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day to their craft. Um, so yeah, they can hop from project to project and still get something done. But for the most part, uh, people can't do that. You know, uh, writers who do this, who you know work on a project until it gets hard and then move to a new idea, those people have difficulty finishing projects for a few reasons. One is that they're simply not practicing finishing projects. And they're, in a, even worse than that, training themselves to not finish projects. Uh, and as soon as they may make progress on a lot of projects uh, at once, and they may feel like they're getting somewhere, uh, but they may actually have little to show for their tremendous efforts. You, know, you can have a weird scenario uh, as a writer where you write a lot. Maybe you write you know, 2,000 words a day, but you're working on so many different projects that you're not finishing everything. So perhaps you, know, you write a half a million words in a year, um, but you don't finish anything substantial. You don't finish your novel. Your 100,000 word novel you don't finish, even though you wrote half a million words. You wrote five times that amount this year, but you didn't finish your novel. That happens to a lot of people, uh, people who are productive. So day to day you may feel very productive, but you may not be accomplishing the things you truly want to accomplish. You may be a you know novelist with no novel, um, even though you're writing a substantial amount of things. So that's a problem that is, you know, in some ways, a luxurious problem as I say but it is still a problem like if you want to uh, you'd be better off obviously writing five novels a year <laughs> than writing none now I don't know if it's possible I've seen people write five novels a year but for the most part you you're going to hit somewhere between you know one novel a year would be good for most people right one novel every two years would be great for a lot of people but probably you're all this is the sad truth that you should realize and recognize if you are a writer who writes with any regularity, you're probably producing a novel's worth, a book's worth of material every year. And it's probably just not focused. And if you just focus your efforts uh, and were careful and choosy about what you, you began to work on, and if you forged through the hard times instead of jumping to a new project, uh, you would get things done. And of course, if you get things done, you can build from one thing to another thing to another thing to another thing. You can ladder upwards. If at the end of 10 years you've got, you know, 80 books half written, you still have, you may have done quantifiably more work than the person who, you know, 
has written one book in that period and nothing else. But as far as the world is concerned, you might as well have done nothing because you didn't finish anything. So you have to commit to a project. Uh, and therefore, you must sift the good ideas from the bad ideas. And you have to rank or prioritize your ideas. Now, this is easier said than done. Now, there's a lot of reasons and a lot of factors that come into play here. But I want to examine the uh, that core problem of evaluating ideas uh, here. So I'm going to assume that you're accepting the necessity of committing to a project. You know, that you're, you're going to accept uh, that you can't do everything. You're going to accept that you, therefore, will have to not do many great things. Uh, you've instead tried to figure out, of all the ideas I have, um, what am I going to pick and commit to? How am I going to evaluate my ideas? So that's the sort of problem I want to you know, get into here. How do you evaluate your ideas? Now, one of the problems with evaluating ideas is that the quality of the idea is somewhat insignificant. I mean, we talk about good and bad ideas, but you can create a good piece of writing from a bad idea and a bad piece of writing from a good idea. You can even create a masterpiece from a bad idea. I mentioned Hamlet before. Uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet is a masterpiece, I would say, but it's one of, also one of the worst, most disorganized plots of any Shakespeare play. Uh, but I would consider it his best play, and many do. Uh, but objectively, you know, it is a disaster in certain respects. Um, I would say that it's an example of a masterpiece from a, a bad idea, more or less a bad idea. Now, your enthusiasm for an idea, and it, so the quality of the idea is not necessarily uh, significant. You know, again, some ideas uh, maybe seem better than others, but fundamentally, again, the execution is what matters. You know, keep in mind, someone stealing your good idea or your bad idea doesn't matter so much. Um, the execution is what matters. The other thing, uh, weirdly, is yet your enthusiasm for the idea is also somewhat irrelevant. Uh, your enthusiasm is going to flag. You know, what you need to get you through the terrible slumps, uh, and there will be many terrible slumps when you... Uh, are pursuing an idea. What you need is you need to find like the thing that's going to get you through those slumps. What's, what are you going to do when you hate your idea? You know that thing that you thought was so great two weeks ago. Uh, now you've been working on it two weeks and you are sick of it. Maybe two years you've been working on it. It's you know been a tough nut to crack and you're just fed up with this book. What are you going to do? Are you going to quit? Well, that's an option. Um, Sometimes you need to get through it. You need. To, what are you going to? You can't just be enthusiastic all the time. Again, if you just follow your enthusiasm, you'll jump from project to project because you'll quit as soon as it gets difficult. If you quit as soon as you get difficult, then you're going to. Um, you're not going to grow and develop as a writer. Uh, if you if you finish anything, um, you'll finish it on a haphazard schedule. So one, you can't professionalize, right? You can't be putting out material in a predictable manner uh, into a market that will pay you. Um, this is going to have a career effect uh, if you jump around and just follow your enthusiasms. Uh, additionally, your enthusiasm is going to flag and you're going to hate your idea at some point. And how are you going to get through that? Only discipline and commitment will get you through it. So again, I think it goes back to committing to the idea. Obviously, you want to have some enthusiasm for this idea. Like You want to believe you know, in your heart that's a good idea in certain ways. 
But you should also recognize that whether it's a good idea or not doesn't really matter. Your execution matters. And your enthusiasm is also a little irrelevant in the sense that it's not going to be constant. Now, the temptation a lot of people have also is to think through career or market possibilities. And I want to say, again, I'm being a bit contrarian with this uh, subject. I want to suggest that it's always a mistake to think through career and market possibilities. Because the fact is nobody knows what will sell this week. Nobody knows what will sell next week. Sometimes I meet writers who talk about jumping on some trend to make money. You know, they say they're going to mark, you know, jump on this trend. They're going to write a vampire novel or whatever it is. This is the trend that they want to jump on. Here's the thing you got to keep in mind. When the parade is marching down your street, it's too late to join the parade. It's already too late. You know, when that bandwagon is going by, it's too late to jump on the bandwagon. Uh, you know, it's, it's going by. You can't anticipate trends. You can only be swept up in them. Now, if when Twilight hit, if you already had a vampire novel that was published and in stores, or if you had a vampire novel about to come out, when that you know wave hit, then the trend might have worked for you. But you couldn't really effectively capitalize on that trend. Now, there's rare exceptions to this kind of thing, and the exceptions are really for people who are uh, they already are very connected, so they could like publish fast in that sense. Or they have like a system already to self-publish fast, say, and a marketing system or something. If you already have a network and a, everything set up, you're already plugged in, plus you can work really fast, then sure, you can benefit from trends. Um, I would say that it's generally a mistake. Uh, I would say it's generally best to ignore market and career possibilities. Because the other thing is, if you're making decisions about what to write based on some vague notion of what the market expects, You'll just sand the rough edges off your idea. You'll, you'll eliminate everything that made it a good idea in the first place. And you'll eliminate everything that is unique to you. And again, valuable uh, in terms of just pure market value. Like what can you sell as a writer? Uh, what do other people not have? Well, it's the thing that makes you different, your style. Uh, at least the style you're going to apply to this particular you know work. If you just start getting marketing into your head you're going to start sanding the rough edges off and you're going to try to produce a thing like these other things you're going to just eliminate your style and like nullify your style and dampen it down so the very ironically the very thing that is valuable is you're going to try to get rid of because you're going to be trying to uh, you know capitalize on this market trend so that said, an idea as being good or bad is not necessarily a useful guideline. Uh, an idea, your enthusiasm for the idea is not necessarily useful. Some marketability uh, of the idea is not necessarily useful. There's no real way to evaluate ideas in terms of their intrinsic value since they have none. Uh, but you can evaluate ideas on different terms um, by asking a few questions of the idea. So here are the questions that I would uh, you know, ask you to ask. <laughs> One, how has it been done before? Not has it been done before, because it almost certainly has, but how has it been done before? Almost every idea has been done before. Uh, you may do some research to determine what lives in, what lives your ideas have previously lived. Uh, but this research will help you refine the ideas. They'll help you develop them in light of their previous incarnations and make them more yours. 
uh, you may also decide to abandon your idea uh, after realizing it's far less original than you imagined. Like you may, again, I don't think you need to have a super original idea, but um, if that was your attraction to the idea, you may just you know realize eventually, oh, it wasn't that original, and you may just lose your interest. Um, but really, when you start to figure out how has the thing been done before, you start to get a clearer sense of maybe how you could do it. Um, and the research is going to help you refine the idea and give you new and better ideas sometimes to replace that one. The other thing I think you should ask yourself is uh, not just how has it been done before, and then kind of thinking through, well, is your take on it um, going to be interesting relative to those things? But two, do you think you can do it? Do you think you can do it? If you're confident in your ability to take an idea from conception to completion, I might suggest you should abandon the idea. I mean, it seems strange and counterintuitive, but again, if you're confident that you can do this, uh, maybe you shouldn't do it. I would ask you to rethink whether you should do it. Because if you don't have to stretch to pursue your ideas, they may end up boring you, and you won't build up your writing muscles. Uh, so if you want to develop as a writer, you really need to tackle ideas that force you to risk something creatively. Uh, you need to try to do things that you don't know if you can do. Uh, the more difficult the writing becomes, the more rewards you will see when you finally solve your creative problems. Like if this thing seems too easy or it seems too possible in a certain sense, I might suggest you uh, maybe rethink it and, and start chasing riskier ideas, you know, things that are a bit more challenging that you're kind of afraid uh, to chase. The other thing to consider is, will this idea generate more ideas? Uh, what you really need for an, from an idea is the potential to generate new ideas. So uh, a work of art, you got to keep in mind, is a culmination of an entire creative process. And during that process, you'll need to be generating and discarding and developing ideas you know, constantly. Sometimes what you're going to do is you're going to hit on an idea that's so strong, it seems like a miniature idea factory. Uh, when that happens, you might have a concept on your hands, an idea that gives birth to and structures some larger project. Uh, that's what happened to me when I wrote a book called Clockfire. I had the idea of plays that would be impossible to produce. And I started investigating that idea and developing like its possibilities, and it blossomed into a whole book. Uh, so I ended up doing 77, 77 plays that are impossible to produce. That's what clock, Clockfire is. A really simple way to try to evaluate your ideas is just forget about them. Like, don't write them down. Just kind of forget about them. <laughs> it sounds stupid, but if it has been years and you still keep thinking of this thing and you just keep coming back to the same idea, you know, maybe there's something in that idea. If it just won't let you go, uh, maybe you should commit to that idea. Personally, I usually don't pursue or begin writing anything until I've let a few years pass from having the initial idea. Now, that's not necessarily the best plan, <laughs> but uh, it just seems to be something that I do. I don't do it all the time, but a lot of the time I don't pursue writing something seriously until uh, you know the idea has seemed worth pursuing for a number of years. I've been doing things in the meantime, pursuing other ideas. Um, but for some writers, you know, this is not work. For some writers, this is a creative death. You know, their ideas will just be, you know, they, they, they are sad and they mourn their lost ideas. They mourn when an idea dies, when they don't pursue something and it just fades away. See, I love it when my ideas die. You know, this is my really simple method of weeding out weak ideas. 
that don't even interest me for very long. If, if it's not going to interest me uh, after a few months or after a couple of years, after the initial shine of the newness of the idea has worn off, if even I'm still not interested, then I don't see how I'm going to interest somebody else and create like a lasting you know, work of any sort. So uh, I would say don't mourn your dead ideas. You know, rejoice uh, when your ideas die. Just use that as a winning process. Uh, you know, that said, you may have some you know, deadline-driven need to produce a lot of ideas. Maybe work in television, say on a TV show, you have to be portraying ideas constantly all the time uh, that have to work and you have to pursue them right away. You know, it's not going to work for everybody, but that process uh, is, you know, it's not a bad process. Now, after you've evaluated your ideas and discarded most of them, you'll still have too many ideas. Uh, so you still need to start prioritizing them and committing to a select few of them. Uh, so there's a few factors that come into play and can help you to decide what projects deserve your full commitment. One is simply external pressures. Like if you have a deadline for a project, well, of course you should prioritize it and commit to it. And that might seem obvious, but I know I still find myself procrastinating by pursuing more enjoyable projects. <laughs> you know, I do this all the time. This is my favorite form of procrastination because that makes me feel like I'm still getting things done. And in some ways I am. Uh, but in other ways, uh, it's really become stressful, of course, as I get close to that deadline. Uh, so again, I say, um, if you haven't given a deadline for a project, you should prioritize and commit to that project and try to do that thing first. And just put off more enjoyable projects until you know you deal with these external pressures. Conversely, you got to be careful not to get caught up in the treadmill of deadlines. You know, you'll find yourself completing a lot of minor projects that other people have assigned to you, but not making progress on your large projects. So I'll talk a bit more about this shortly. Um, but one thing I think is important is trying to walk that balance between getting things done uh, and not just getting a bunch of minor things done, <clears throat> but actually making the time for you know, larger projects. But, you know, working on them, uh, you know, and not letting them get to the point where all of a sudden you know, you're putting, staying up all night trying to get things done by deadline. The other thing is projects that live multiple lives. Now, I've talked about this before in the episode on double tasking. Um, and uh, you know, dealing with productivity uh, issues. So a link to the productivity issues podcast. Um, if you go again to jonathanpaul.com slash 27, uh, I'll link to that other episode from these notes. Um, but projects, some of your projects will go further than others and have more of an impact on your goals as a writer. Uh, a simple example is a good poem. So if you were a poet and you write a good poem, well, once that's finished, it could, one, you know, be published in a journal all by itself. Two, it could be part of a sequence that you publish together as a chapbook. Three, you know, you could take that chapbook and all the poems in it, including this one, put them into a sequence, into a collection, as a book section. You know, barring other factors, that poem might be worth committing to rather than a poem that you know won't be part of a larger sequence. You know, won't, you know, eventually make it into a book, and so on and so forth. So if you've got something that that lives multiple lives like that. Uh, you know, if you can finish a poem that also will be part of a book, for example, um, maybe that's worth doing than just, you know, finishing another poem that, you know, won't necessarily work its way into a book. Sometimes you don't know that stuff in advance, but other times you do know it. And a really good rule of thumb, I think, for what projects do you should you commit for to, um, I think you should try to commit to the project you most fear. 
projects you most fear. You know, I like to commit to projects that I don't think I can do, you know, that I think represent a real risk for me. Now, there's problems with doing that, of course. You know, you don't always win when you challenge yourself. Sometimes you lose, but you can't get better as a writer, I don't think, unless you're continuing to take risks and try to grow. You know, I can't think of a better way to grow than committing to the projects you most fear and really, you know, giving it your all. You know, if, if the project beats you, well, it beats you. Um, but if you can beat that project, you know, if you can, you know, make that thing you fear uh, work, well, now you've done something you didn't think you could do. And I think the rewards to that are going to be substantial. You know, maybe you're not going to make any money or anything, but psychologically, I think, and artistically, you're really going to grow from that experience. Another thing to just consider is, <clears throat> what have you already done? My curse for many years is that I worked on a lot of projects at once. Uh, and I'm still finishing those projects. You know, I have very little time for new projects. But my entire li writing life changed when I instituted one simple rule. I can only work on the book that I'm closest to finishing. Now, I made for this rule for myself in 2008. And in 2009, I published my first book. That's how fast it had an effect. And before that book was published, I had a second book accepted to be published. So the most powerful like productivity rule I've had is doing one thing at a time. And then uh, related to that, I can only work on the thing I'm closest to finishing, the book I'm closest to finishing. Or I can you know, abandon it and never uh, do that book. I've talked about this before, but um, if you want to just figure out, well, what should I commit to? One thing is just I've got something that's almost finished. You know, if you're already partly done something, maybe just commit to that. If you don't know which one of these multiple unfinished things you should commit to, I say just work on the thing that you're closest to finishing. You know, if you work on the thing you're closest to finishing, then you'll finish uh, faster. Then, of course, you'll finish something else. And that'll kind of give you a bit of a snowball effect. You can kind of just keep going and keep uh, building on the momentum. And my last suggestion here is the one that's worked best for me. Uh, this uh, work in the book is closest to fit being finished. Since I started forcing myself to finish book-length projects in the order of what's nearest to completion, uh, I averaged a published book every year. Uh, before that point, I struggled to finish anything for a decade. Now, right now, I really want to work on uh, this novel project, um, but I was very close to finishing. A, well, when I wrote this originally, I wrote this draft originally of this article that I'm now kind of turning into a podcast. When I wrote that original draft, I was very close to finishing a book of short stories, but I wanted to work on a novel. Um, and I owed a director a screenplay. So, you know, it was the short stories first, the screenplay second, the novel third. Now, right now, as I'm talking to you here, it looks a little different. Um, I've had those short stories accepted. Uh, they're going to come out and be published. I'm revising. I'm working on deadline. I'm revising my um, uh, book that's going to come out this fall. After that, I've got to do some revisions and make some changes on the short story book uh, coming out. Then I got to go back and rewrite the screenplay that um, I had finished the screenplay that I wrote previously, but then me and the director decided to make some massive changes. So I got to do another version of it. Um, I should have done that previously, but I've been so, uh, I've been having a hard time cracking the code of it. And at the same time, I had these two books accepted. So I've been having to work on these books because, you know, the books are coming out for sure. Who knows what's going on with the screenplay, right? It depends on so many factors, as film always does. 
Um, so that's, you know, now the external pressures have sort of determined my next projects at this point. Uh, but then I'm going to work on a novel finally. Um, that's one that doesn't have as much external pressure, but it is, again, closest to being done. I'm two-thirds of the way finished this novel. So I feel like I just need to, you know, push it through that final third before I start working on other things. Now, I try to imagine that I'm two people. A writer and that writer's jerk boss. <laughs> so, you know, I put on the jerk boss hat when I need to make decisions about what the writer is going to be working on. Um, whether the writer, me, wants to do the thing or not, you know, the jerk boss is going to figure out what's the best use of my time. Because emotionally, what you want to do in the moment is never the best use of your time, or rarely at least the best use of your time. Usually, the emotionally interesting thing is the thing that you shouldn't be doing that you're procrastinating to avoid some other thing that you should be doing, which maybe you're afraid of, and therefore is maybe uh, the thing that's going to you know, actually be the most value for you as an artist to create, create and to produce and to finish. Now, if you prior to you commit to a list of projects, so you finally you know gotten your bunch of ideas, you whittle it down to a handful of ideas. Uh, you still got to prioritize these projects a little bit. Um, so we talked a bit about some of the prioritization systems you might use. Um, something that I like to do is this as a really simple system: is I keep a revolving list of my top two writing priorities, uh, and they break down this way. So I have a major project like a book or a screenplay, some massive you know, project. I have a minor project like a single poem or a book review or a short story or something like that. So major project and a minor project. Uh, and major and minor just refer to length to me, like something that takes a long time um, and you know, a minor project that does takes less time, you know, theoretically at least. I'm trying not to commit to any projects that are truly minor. Like I try not to commit to anything that's not a significant major project. Um, but you know, major and minor kind of refer to length. You know, got these big major major projects and minor major projects. And you know, once in a while, I'm a hack for money and you know write a book review or something. But I only did that, um, you know, from time. I, I try to minimize that in a certain way. Uh, I try to only work on the major project and ignore the minor project as much as possible. So if I can't ignore the minor project, I've got a deadline for a book review approaching, uh, then I try to spend some time on the major project, like 15 minutes or something, and then shift focus to the minor project. Um, if the major project is going terrible, I'll just put in time with it, like put in a little bit of time, and then I'll shift to the more fun minor project. Um, so the major project will proceed faster or slower depending on how many deadlines I have or just how engaged I am with the project. But it still is progressing. No matter what, it still makes progress on the major project. Whether I feel like it or not, whether I've got a lot of time or not, I still make progress on that major project. Then, you know, the minor project, maybe I'll make more or less progress as, you know, I, the mood strikes me or deadlines force me. So I run through more minor projects, obviously. You know, it takes me longer to write a book than it does to write, you know, a series of poems or articles or whatever. Um, book views, obviously, don't take as long as writing a book. So, um, you know, I'll, my, my priorities, my top two priorities will always, you know, that minor project will keep shifting. Um, but I always have that 
number 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 one priority that major project that i'm going to try to focus on first first things first right as the productivity gurus like to say now the most important point here and the reason for this system is that even if i have a lot of other things to do even if i'm bored or i'm feeling blocked that major project gets worked on and it gets finished at some point like it actually gets finished now i just want to repeat that even if i have a lot of other things to do even if i'm bored and feeling blocked even if i'm sick or exhausted or you know depressed or whatever uh, i work on the major project at least for a few minutes it gets done no matter what um, maybe it will get done faster or slower uh, at times but it gets done um, i force myself to focus on things that are closest to being finished so i make a fair bit of progress and i seem you know fairly productive in some ways my productivity is a false productivity because a lot of the times when i finish something it's something like I started five years ago, <laughs> you know? I started like 20, 10 years ago or something, and I'm just now finishing it. Um, but because of the rate at which I finish things, it seems very productive. So in some ways it's a false productivity, but in other ways, like it's real productivity, I actually am finishing things and getting things done. Um, so, you know, I've got this big backlog of undirected random progress and that I made on various projects. It's a bit of a false industry, uh, but you know, nevertheless, that's, you know, it's working. Like it's working. I'm getting things done. I'm turning things out. You know, it's, so sometimes it's a bit of a disjuncture. I mean, there's always like a difference between how you feel you're working and how others you know, see you working. Like I'm viewed primarily as a poet, for example. Even though I write very little poetry, I, I mostly work on fiction. But of course, poets, poems are short. And you can write them faster and so i tend to you know turn them out a little more fast and fully than i do fiction um so you know there's this public's perception that i'm more a poet even though i i write don't write a lot of poetry i mostly write fiction even a lot of my poetry is actually in my mind it is fiction it's just a very kind of experimental unusual fiction that looks poetic or takes you know poetic form in some ways but you know what? This is why I make this joke like I'm a horror writer that nobody agrees with me. Uh, but you know what? Um, how people view me, my writing is is not the concern. Like people are going to view you how they view you. You can't control how they view you. My concern is working and getting work done. So you know how people view the work is you know what what how they view it. If you want to look at something I think is a short story and you call it a poem. You know, I could argue that you're wrong, but uh, what's the point? What's the point in arguing that? You're going to think what you think, and you're going to market me how you want to market me, you know, and so on. Here's a question that sometimes I get asked, how do I know when I've finished a project? And honestly, I don't have a good answer for that question. I decide I've finished a project when I don't know how to improve it any longer. You know, that's when I stop editing, when I feel like no matter how much I work on the project, it's only changing superficially. It's not improving substantially. Now, sometimes after that point, I'll make substantial changes. So with The Politics of Knives, that's what I did. I, I worked on the book for many years, and I got to this pro point where I felt like I was just getting nowhere. Uh, I didn't feel like I was making the book better. I felt like I was just making it different. But I didn't think it was done. So I didn't know what to do. 
uh, I got feedback from people, but all their feedback was clashing. Nobody had a clear idea what was wrong with the book. I didn't know what was wrong with the book. It, it looked done. It seemed done, but I, I just didn't feel it was done. So I decided, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's publishable. It was clearly publishable at that point. It just wasn't ineffably what I wanted it to be. So in the end, I decided I would submit it to Coach House Books. So I just submitted it to my publisher. I had such a good experience working with them on Clockfire, and they seemed very well disposed towards me. So I gambled. I suspected they wouldn't want to publish the book the way it was. But I also knew that they'd read the manuscript carefully and consider it carefully since they seemed to want to work with me again. And my gamble was this. Uh, maybe the editor at the time, Kevin Connolly, would read it and realize what was wrong with it <laughs> and like it enough that we could fix it together and he could, you know, and we could, you know, have the book primed and planned to come out while I was working on it. So that's more or less what happened. You know, Kevin suggested cutting out a section of the book where I had a bunch of single poems and the rest of the book had consisted of poetic sequences. Uh, so I saw it all of a sudden, like something I should have seen way before, which is that the whole book should be sequences. Um, I shouldn't have these individual poems. I should have all sequences. And I should rewrite each sequence so that it cross-connected with the others in these oblique ways that wouldn't necessarily be apparent to most readers, although some readers did really pick up on it. Uh, and I'll link to a, um, a great review that Gary Thomas Morris did where he really started he really got what I was doing with Politics and Knives and started uh, talking about it as an anti-novel. Um, now, now the editor also of Coach House had expressed some concerns that uh, so much of the book had been published already. And there are sometimes weird rules around grants to publishers in Canada about you know, how much is new work, how much is previously published work. Um, so they had asked me also, is there new work you could include? Um, and now I realized in the back of my mind what I should do is pull out half the book. At that point, I had gotten this feedback from... Kevin Connolly and from Alana Wilcox, their feedback was not that extreme. They were like, you know, a few changes, this book could really work. I looked at what they said, though, and I was like, oh, dear Lord, you know, they're right, but also they're wrong. The book is way, way far away from being published how I want it to be. Um, I have to destroy half the book. <laughs> they weren't saying anything like that, but I was like, I got to take half the book out and replace it with new material. Uh, Alana was talking about something else entirely, but she was right. You know, the sections had been written too far apart. It didn't feel cohesive as a result. Uh, Kevin started to get really concerned at this point because I really just started gutting and trashing the book. Like, Alana didn't really know we were doing this, but, but I was, like, taking... At this point, I was taking whole sections of the book that Kevin thought were strong, and I was just throwing them in the trash. And he's like, well, maybe don't throw all the book in the trash. Um, but I did end up replacing it with stronger stuff, um, and I even wrote a new section that he was like, you know, this part isn't good. This isn't good enough. You can't put this in. Um, but for the most part, I wrote better material after trashing a bunch of material. So I ended up like in you know a book that's roughly 100 pages. Uh, the book that was accepted, I threw out 50% of that book pretty near. I wrote another, like I threw out about 50 pages. I wrote another 70 pages. Then I threw out like another 20 pages of that. Um, or whatever, I forget the numbers, but that's the ratios. Uh, in the end, you know, I was done though. It worked, it worked uh, well. Like, you know, I, 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 again, the idea generated more ideas in the process of working. And sometimes you just have to trust that it's gonna work, happen that way. And, and of course, when you got a good editor or set of editors in this case. 
So I finished the book and I mailed it away, but then I finished it again on route to publication. And my first book, by contrast, Ex Machina, we went through almost no changes in the publishing process. Um, Clockfire had you know some changes, but not a lot. Um, Ex Machina, you know, massive changes. My book that I'm putting together now, um, it's not as many changes as politics and eyes, but there have been some you know sort of major changes. And certainly since I started editing it um, before submitting it to the publisher, there've been massive, massive changes. Paul Valery once wrote that works of art are never completed except by some accident, such as weariness, satisfaction, the need to deliver, or death. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, you have to come to the end of the idea and move on, even if you're not fully satisfied. Um, so I hope uh, this has been instructive and useful to you. Uh, I'm sorry for my voice giving out so much. Uh, I've been having a lot of problems with my voice the last little while. Um, that's just how it goes. I've got a head cold. I've got, I, I was just talking for, you know, five hours basically in lectures and so on. I really, almost seven hours straight. Uh, and then I'm finishing up this recording here. So now I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I scheduled when to do this. I'm abiding by the schedule. Hope all is well with you. I hope you have a good uh, eve and a good day, whatever it is for you. Have a good one and uh, keep writing the wrong way. Yeah,